welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to our fourth episode of ModPass Chat. Our guest today is Alan Borzak, Professor of Pathology at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Hospital. Dr. Borzak is an internationally recognized expert in the fields of lung cancer and interstitial lung disease. He's joining me today to discuss his recently accepted publication in our journal. The uh, multi-institutional study that he's going to discuss with, it, with us today is one of, was one of the first to delineate the pulmonary findings in a large cohort of COVID-19 patients. Thank you, Alan, for accepting the invite. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share the work and to talk about it uh, with your readership. Wonderful. Uh, I, I tremendously uh, learned from uh, from reading uh, the papers uh, initially and, and now in preparation for this podcast, and uh, uh, I, uh, I'm glad we got this chance. So uh, I guess here it goes without saying what were the circumstances that led you uh, to do uh, such study, but uh, can you share with us some of uh, the uh, insights on, on how this cohort came about, because I realize it's from uh, the two, uh, at the time, epicenters of, of the pandemic. So can you detail some of those? So we, we saw our first case um, that was test positive here roughly mid-March, and it had a very unusual histology. Um, as a result, I almost immediately reached out to colleagues to see whether there were cases that could be shared in uh, sort of a multi-institutional way. And we did that through the Pulmonary Path Society. Um, the Pulmonary Path Society put out uh, an invitation uh, of that type. And as a result, uh, two people responded with cases, uh, one Fiorella Calabresi from the University of Padova and uh, Mary Beth Beasley from Mount Sinai. All, all of us were in the same situation. We were seeing new and increasing number of cases, but even in just verbal communication, uh, we were seeing some similar findings and some different findings, and we thought this was an opportunity to collect consecutive cases and to share them among three members of the Pulmonary Path Society, really focusing on lung pathology. I see. And incidentally, uh, Dr. Beasley uh, and and Dr. Calabresi are also equal contributors to uh, with you to the papers, uh, just uh, for the sake of disclosure. So, uh, uh, and, and how did the, can you tell us a little bit more about the design in terms of number of cases and breakdowns and, and what exactly you did and looked at? So, so we began and continued with consecutive cases. Um, in the beginning, what we did was we shared our initial cases through digital pathology and also through still images to I guess, titrate our pathology findings to each other, meaning uh, I might have been saying, well, you know, there's a lot of thrombosis, but what a lot of thrombosis meant was not necessarily the same to all the observers. So we did a a, a 10 case sort of round robin that way using digital pathology to try to get our numbers sort of similar in terms of our scoring, which was semi-quantitative, but nevertheless, uh, we wanted to make sure we were seeing and saying the same things. Um, There were certain observations, for example, thrombosis 
epithelial injury, which we were initially interpreting somewhat differently. But in the end, with as the cases amassed, we, we became more uh, in, in line with each other in terms of how we were scoring so that we could really do this in a more scientific and, and uniform way across three institutions where we really, even within New York, quarantined from each other. Wow. And uh, so, so all that was done digitally, and I guess the cases started to, unfortunately, accumulate in, uh, in a relatively short time frame. What, what was the time frame when you closed? Um, so, so this is essentially an accrual of uh, roughly a month and a half of cases. Oh. Um, we, we did cut it off at some point because we really wanted to share the findings. We, we started to see some very consistent features and we felt that it was important to, to really get it out there um, considering we anticipated that this would not necessarily be isolated to New York and Italy. And uh, so in that, those, those are 68 cases. So were these all full autopsies or well, I know the focus was on pulmonary for this publication, but. Uh, so of the 68 cases, 65 were full body autopsies. Uh, brain autopsies, we were not doing at Cornell. Um, because of some of the limitations of our autopsy room and the use of the bone saw and concerns about uh, spread within the, within the laboratory. And yeah. so we did not do brain. Um, three of the autopsies were extensive lung samplings through a, a chest-only incision based upon the patient uh, family permission. I see. And uh, in terms of uh, ancillary techniques, uh, can you share with us some of the techniques that you use? So um, the different sites had somewhat different focus, but uh, we did electron microscopy on quite a few of the cases. We did uh, culture uh, of lung and uh, heart blood on, on uh, many of the cases. Uh, at Cornell, all of them got that. At some of the other sites, it was more related to history, uh, whether it was done. Um, we did immunohistochemistry for spike protein and in situ hybridization. Uh, for spike pro, uh, protein message um, uh, in all the Cornell cases, so the 23 cases. And uh, the RNA-ish and the ILC were, were developed uh, LDT or at that time? I mean, because that's... They were developed LDT. That is correct. Wow. And uh, uh, for the listeners, uh, uh, some beautiful images. Uh, I refer them to the manuscript. Uh, that, uh, thank you for providing those. So uh, I guess let's, let's just briefly discuss what are the salient findings and which uh, at the time of uh, this was, you know, uh, early on and not, not all of us knew, but uh, still uh, a lot of uh, interesting findings. Can you share with us? So there are some of the findings that I think were uh, consistent with what was coming out in other single case and single institution series. We were seeing uh, ARDS or the acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, we were seeing thrombosis, uh, thrombosis in the lung, but uh, in other organs as well. Um, we were, what's distinct in our series is that we identified a large airway lesion uh, small aphthous-like ulcers in the large airways, which uh, were consistent with uh, COVID autopsies, which we were not seeing in other autopsies. Um, some of the images are in the paper. Uh, the ARDS was a curiosity for me because um, as we shared the cases, what we found was that while the typical sequence of ARDS is to progress to type 2 hyperplasia, fibroblastic proliferation, and perhaps eventually fibrosis, 
mm-hmm. we did see those changes, and we saw those changes with increasing number of days of disease. But what was a surprise to me is that the hyaline membranes, that is the new injury, was mm-hmm. persistent and still increased with days of disease. And so while in other ARDS, we would see somewhat of a more temporally heterogeneous sequence, in this disease, we were seeing new hyaline membranes alongside organized ARDS. I see. So, so how would you explain that? Do you think it's just continuous injury or...? So in the throes of, of everything that was going on, we, we, our explanation was potentially ventilator-associated injuries, secondary pneumonias. However, a large proportion of our pa- patients never saw a ventilator. And we were still seeing these new injuries. They were simply uh, unexplained, simply from ventilator injury. And the culture results were not necessarily supporting bacterial infections. And so this is what led us to really push forward with the immunohistochemistry and in situ uh, to really try to decide in an individual patient whether the new injuries were due to virus and persistent virus or whether it was really due to these secondary um, manifestations of, you know, treatment-related injuries that were inevitable in, in patients with chronic intubation or in chronic ventilation. And, and I guess the answer was, was it, it was the virus? So in the first two weeks, virus was present in hyaline membranes and in areas of new injury almost selectively. Mm-hmm. After two weeks, it was a more of a mixed situation. Some patients were in healing phase, But if we saw hyaline membranes in the later period, they were almost always associated with virus. And this went out to as as many as four weeks after initial presentation. So within the first two weeks, frequent. Within the latter two weeks, in other words, that two to four weeks, less frequent. But new injuries were still associated with viral infection even between two and four weeks. Amazing. So much to learn about this disease. I, I noticed uh, you did uh, even CD61 positivity to map some platelets for microthrombi. Can, uh, can you share with us someone? So the, the, the first cases that we saw, we, we were perplexed by the eosinophilic material that was in the vessels because it didn't look like fibrin. It looked like a bland or, or what people might call a bland or white thrombus. That is, it, it didn't have an awful lot of fibrin in it. And when we first saw it, I guess our instinct was, is this an artifact? Is this truly um, a thrombus? Um, and what we found, and the CD61 helped us confirm it, was that these are platelet-rich thrombi. And they are throughout the capillary bed, small vessels, and we even found them in heart and other organs. Uh, of course, this paper focused on the lung. Sure. Um, we used the CD61 as an adjunct, but we got to the point where we could recognize these thrombi without the CD61. And again, that was part of the refinement process that we uh, kind of started out with. Some of us saw the same finding and didn't interpret it, in fact, as a thrombus. Um, we thought that it was an artifact. And this was something that took some time, um, but we, we convinced each other in a way that they were real. Interesting. And, and certainly, I, I know I've, I've never used the CD61, so that's, that's a very smart way of approaching it and glad uh, it explains. So uh, what are uh, the impacts, I guess? At this point, we all know that this is a more systemic, and, uh, but can you uh, uh, explain uh, some of the impact of your findings in terms of uh, 
prognostication or, or uh, potential therapeutics. And, and I know some uh, a sub, subset of this cohort you shared with me that uh, was a subject of a second publication uh, looking at the pathophysiology. So if you can share with our audience. So seeing this disease as a disease of epithelial injury as well as disease of endothelial injury uh, was very important to shaping some of the therapeutics and still is. For example, the distinction of persistent viral infection from secondary infections really does argue in favor of an antiviral approach and that that antiviral approach might need to be uh, in place past even the first seven days for in two weeks. Um, there were blood, for example, anecdotally, the number of blood cultures being requested across our hospitals increased quite a bit during this period. The number of positive blood cultures went down tremendously. So people were, were experiencing a neutrophil and a, a white count elevation that was not associated with positive blood culture. And we do think that that's part of the unique immune response to this virus is that we're seeing neutrophils. And we're seeing neutrophils in a subset of cases um, more proportionately than we would in another viral type of infection. So that was an unexpected finding. Um, we, we certainly would uh, encourage the idea around anticoagulation as being a therapy, but unfortunately, it's possible that this type of thrombus is not really treated with standard anticoagulation because it is a platelet-rich thrombus, and the approach to platelet-rich thrombi might be different than standard anticoagulation. And in diseases, for example, like TTP, anticoagulation is not performed at all. And so we do wonder whether the anticoagulation protocols need to be examined carefully in these patients. Um, and then I think so antivirals, anticoagulation, and we're still delving into the immune response. This is something that we were more descriptive in this paper, but the immune response is clearly going to be different in these patients, I believe, than in patients who survive it, for one, which is really the main limitation of the study is that we're really seeing treatment failures, not treatment successes here, and it really emphasizes the worst of the disease, not the immense success that there was in, in getting patients out of the hospital alive. So that is one of the limitations of such a study. Uh, you, you alluded to uh, a separate paper on uh, uh, neutrophil extracellular traps that came out uh, based upon uh, three of the cases that were here that, in fact, had a neutrophilic infiltrate and were our early cases. It was interesting that it almost seemed as if our cases progressed in the same way as the disease, in the sense that we saw early acute presentations early on, and we saw more subacute and chronic presentations later in the course of this illness. And it's interesting that those cases tended to come early in our series. And I don't know whether that had to do with a particular susceptibility of the patients who were ill at the beginning or something that is as yet unexplained. However, we do believe that that neutrophil extracellular trap mechanism is the one of the innate immune responses to this virus and is perhaps uh, an important part uh, of the immune response early on to, to viral infection. Well, for uh, those who are interested in, in reading that other paper, it's in JX uh, Journal of Experimental Medicine, correct? JX Med? Yes. Uh, so, well, thanks. That's, that's pretty intriguing. Uh, any, anything else uh, you would like to say about this and or in general about, I know this study by design was 
uh, was autopsy study, so long term, uh, but as as an interstitial uh, uh, lung disease expert, that you're learning uh, beyond uh, what this study about the disease that you can share with us, especially on the long term effects on lung. Yeah, uh, for sure that um, you know some of the patients definitely had, uh, developed lung fibrosis here, mm-hmm. and that lung fibrosis is obviously in these patients was associated with a negative outcome, but it's to be expected then that the lung injury in a subset of patients will lead to some degree of lung fibrosis. And that will have long-term implications for the survivors of this disease. What percentage of those patients is unclear? um, And that remains an an open question. Two of the other situations that happened in in a way independent of this paper, but in collecting this series, is that there were some patients who image, by imaging were felt to have lung fibrosis, but in fact, it reversed and they improved. And so we do face this problem of at say three to four weeks after ARDS, is that patient going to require lung transplantation? Is that patient going to improve? That question is very, very hard to answer still. And it would be a wonderful future direction if there were serum correlates of disease that would improve versus disease that is now permanently fibrotic. And this is, I think, important work that has to be done because we we did face this dilemma. And it's a moral dilemma of whether to remove someone from a ventilator uh, when you feel that they have permanent lung fibrosis. If that observation is incorrect, you are then withdrawing a ventilator on someone who might have improved in the next two to three weeks. So some of the fibrosis and your experience being reversible down the road. And, and Or some of the imaging features that are being interpreted as fibrosis may still be fibroblastic proliferation that can be reversed. That's correct. That's correct. Well, uh, thank you again. For this uh, was uh, very enlightening, and uh, I would like to uh, uh, take the opportunity to congratulate you on your new role. Uh, we're going to be uh, even more of colleagues now. Uh, you're uh, the new editor-in-chief of uh, Archive and Laboratory Medicine, so I, I look forward to our interactions uh, on the two journals. Uh, this has been a pleasure to have you, Alan. Thank you so much for the invitation and for the kind uh, offers and and congratulations. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.